And I think there's so much pain going on in the world and that you feel like because there's so much pain, no one should deserve to have any happiness. And I think that's kind of, Mm. if I was giving advice to someone else, I'd say that's a bit of a flawed concept. It's a balance between being like attuned and aware and deciding to like help in the ways that you can and and address the, the pain that you can and not get swallowed up by the stuff that you can't. Hi, you're listening to At Home in the Mind with me, Vika. This podcast was originally going to be called On the Road in the Mind, as in February, I set off to spend the last two years of my 20s traveling the world. Two years, however, quickly turned to seven weeks as the world plummeted into crisis following the coronavirus pandemic. For me, this was a huge loss, not only because discovering the world has been something I've always wanted to do, but also because I have come to believe it essential for my mental health. Much of my 20s was spent only looking out for others, totally neglecting myself in the process. As I have slowly been re-emerging and gaining self-awareness, talking to friends and family, I have realized that everyone at some point or other in life deals with major or minor mental health issues. Now that billions around the world are stuck in their homes, many unsure how to cope in isolation, I decided to invite some for a chat to talk through current or past issues and resolutions. My hope is that by sharing these conversations, someone suffering miles away will feel less alone and better able to help themselves. The more we know, the better we can equip ourselves with the tools we need to heal and seek help. Welcome to this bonus episode of At Home in the Mind. It's Thursday, 25th of June today, which is meant to be one of the hottest days of the year here in the UK, which is why I'm back in the garden to try and bring a little bit of sunshine wherever you are. As a disclaimer, I've recorded this now or tried to record this quite a few times because there seems to be some sort of plane parade today. Every five, two minutes, there's a new plane or helicopter So I'm sorry about those sounds because I've decided just to record anyway and hope that you can still hear the birds chirping and the general sounds of summer. As to the episode, it was recorded on the last day of May, which was a sunny Sunday afternoon, not as hot as today, but still rejoicing in the summer's dawn. Sam is a clinical psychologist. And when we spoke, we spoke very much from a coronavirus-focused mindset. My questions and thus her answers were geared around that and around me trying to get a better understanding of psychosis and the treatment of it. I had no idea then of the racial imbalance that exists in mental health treatment as a whole, not just in diagnosing and treating psychosis patients. From speaking to Theo, I have understood the harsh stigma that still exists within the Afro-Caribbean community in the UK. From talking to Andy, I've witnessed how seemingly minor comments, microaggressions, can seriously affect someone's sense of identity and confidence. And from listening to Lexi, I gleaned just a fraction of the anger and pain that the black community have long felt. I now know that the risk of psychosis in black Caribbean groups is estimated to be nearly seven times higher than in the whole population in the UK. I now know that whilst the white community experience a higher rate of suicidal thoughts, suicide rates are higher among young and middle-aged men of Afro-Caribbean origin. I now know that black men are 17 times more likely to be diagnosed with a serious mental health condition. In the future, I hope to record another episode having these figures in mind. 
to speak to someone on the ground and find out what in society is failing these people and what is currently being done to lift the stigma and treat mental health in these communities. So take this episode as an introduction to psychosis, how clinical psychologists have adapted to lockdown to carry on treating their patients on the front line, how clinical psychologists maintain their own mental health to continue doing their jobs at the utmost. And if you or someone you know is suffering from psychosis, I hope the information in this podcast helps you find the treatment that you or they need. With that in mind, let's start, shall we? Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Hello, lovely. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks so much for coming on. You look so like happy in the sunshine. I can hear the birds singing in the background. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the middle of middle of Wales in the middle of nowhere, which is really nice. So sat in the garden after I was just saying before we started recording, very stressful morning in the B and Q queue. So yeah. I'm very very <laughs> Quite a shocking, intense amount of civilization. Yeah. Uh, I'm just on the come down from it. So. <laughs> Relaxing in the garden. That's lovely. But this must be quite a natural space for you now, this this zooming. Going to B&Q must be strange compared to what you and I are doing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I completely forgot what people look like. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I'll introduce myself a little bit. So I'm a clinical psychologist and I work with people who are suffering with psychosis. Uh, and that can be people who are only just very early on having their first experience of sort of hearing voices or having paranoid feelings right through to people that have been living with it for a really long time and kind of are on medication but are still sort of struggling and I offer therapy to kind of help them with those experiences and help them cope with them better and not challenge them but move move them to a position where they can live sort of in harmony with with those experiences to the best of their ability so initially we all thought that it was absolutely going to go tits up when we could do face-to-face sessions because people are really quite unwell and you often need in order to trust that face-to-face contact so I went into this very very hesitant that it was going to be successful doing things remotely but our team leader was very much pushing you know trying to advocate that we could still do our work and because otherwise we were going to be risked being redeployed which would be fine but that would have left all of our patients at sea without any therapy so we were really quite fighting for it and it's it's really worked much better than we could ever have expected for some people engaging even better I'd say because there's something to be said for like being in the safety of your own house and if you've got a quiet private space to do that yeah it's it's working quite well other people less so and and it's colluding almost with their avoidance of the world Um, Mm. and it's much easier to be an isolated person and get away with it at the moment than it is normally. Sure. So often like a lot of people's goals for therapy are to get out more and talk to people more mm-hmm. and you know, go and do some more activities. And those have kind of had to be thrown out the window or made like COVID friendly. So it's been a really interesting experience of adapting. But yeah, we're doing it all remotely and so far so good, I'd say. What's the advice, you know, for someone who seeks isolation as a safety, but it's actually toxic for them? What's the advice that you give now that keeps them safe from the virus, but also helps them to get away from that toxic spot? So like the fact that them avoiding is the thing that's keeping all their distress going. Yeah, see, I think you're thinking about like, 
when you're saying to someone, you know, to make your life better or to make you have less distress in your life, it would be to socialize with people or be getting out more, filling your day more. Obviously, those are the default things. But what, what we're trying to do is work out what the functions of those things would be and see if we can introduce them into someone's life in spite of isolation. So it might be that that person just really isn't doing very much with their day or has no structure or their lack of socializing is literally not having any form of contact with anyone, be it Mm. via video or phone or any kind. So you just have to be quite creative and thinking there is still ways we can move you towards socializing more within this context. It just has to be a bit more creative. So we sort of set up loads of other stuff in the team. People that have finished therapy with us that are recovering really well, a lot of them have amazingly volunteered to do sort of befriending calls. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so that's not therapy at all. That's just someone that has been through an experience of having psychosis and, and is, is doing much better mm. and is just a, a point of contact for someone to build up their socialising. So that's been really good. Yeah, but it's, it's been really interesting. I think to begin at the beginning of lockdown, it was very much, we've got like what we were working on before and we've got the casual pandemic that we're in. What are we going like, to talk about today? Mm-hmm. And initially it was very much kind of like a balancing act between those two things. But now that people are a bit more at peace and realise that they can cope in the current situation, now it seems like we're moving much more towards working on what they were working, wanting to work on before. Okay. So, yeah. So basically, initially, it was very much, let's manage your pandemic anxieties. And now it's, mm-hmm. let's go back to what we were talking about before this crisis erupted. Yeah, exactly. But what I've also found as well is that, again, this is, this is probably a big generalization, but a lot of people that are having really turbulent times with their mental health and very paranoid and the world's a very threatening place for them anyway, are actually responding remarkably well to this. Okay. Because their brain is very attuned for threat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So they're, yeah. they're already living in a very fearful state. So mm. with that in mind, in, in a sort of funny roundabout way, it's prepared them quite well for a global pandemic. Right. Does and that they, make sense? Well, and also maybe they feel vindicated, right? It's like, look, I told you, <laughs> danger's around the corner yeah. and here it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to some extent. And I think it's just quite levelling. Mm. It's something about knowing that I am I'm in the same situation as them. I can't go out the same as they can't go out. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to do a bit more sort of self-disclosure about how I'm coping and mm. how, you know, what, what I found that's helped build a, a therapeutic relationship, I think, remotely. That's helped bolster it where, um, to compensate for how much harder it would be when rather yeah. than face-to-face. I think the other thing that's possibly going on and this is only a subset, I'd say. There's a lot of people that have found it very, very hard. And mm. It's kind of mixed in with like a bit like you were alluding to then, someone that's quite paranoid and, and delusional and already has a quite a big conspiracy around them. Then the COVID has been another like brick on that, if that makes mm. sense, and added to mm-hmm. it. But then I think the people that are coping better, I wonder whether like their minds are so filled up with what was going on already for them that there isn't the space to really take it in seriously or like if you've already got a lot of stuff going on you can only take on so much more if that makes sense yeah so yeah it's almost like they're not giving it the space and therefore it's not causing such an issue and it comes back to the fact that it hasn't shifted a lot of people that are very isolated anyways lifestyle hasn't changed all that much Mm -hmm. so it's been interesting in that perspective but it's a real mix I'd say
And just to go back to the very beginning, for some listeners who may get confused by the terminology, could you describe the difference between a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and a <laughs> and what you do? <laughs> okay, so that's a really good question. Uh, a psychiatrist is a, do- a medical doctor that then specialises in mental health, and so they can prescribe medication. And they are often the leads of community mental health teams or mental health teams. And so they kind of hold a lot of the risk and overall management of someone's care. Whereas I am a clinical psychologist, which means I talk, I do talking, not pills, basically. (laughs) That's a really, (laughs) that's a really good way to like separate them. And so we're trained in a number of different therapies and we apply the appropriate models and I specialize in psychosis so for psychosis we offer CBTP which is cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis okay and then a therapist where so a therapist isn't really a it's not so much of a protected term but it I'd say so you can get a cognitive behavioral therapist you could mm-hmm. get a psychotherapist you could get a occupational therapist but in terms of I suppose counseling is a more generic term mm-hmm. but a therapist would be someone that perhaps specialises in one specific modality of therapy. Okay. Um, so you get a therapist that is a cognitive behavioural therapist and you get a therapist that is a dialectical behavioural therapist, whereas we've got like a broad pan of things that we apply. And then a counsellor is someone that is less trying to impose an intervention per se, mm-hmm. more just a listening space and somewhere for someone to process stuff as opposed to help someone evoke change okay if that makes sense yeah, yeah yeah that makes sense I've never I've never actually had to <laughs> all of those before I'm not sure I know <laughs> I think you did a great job but I definitely understand better and this is just my curiosity but with cognitive behavioral therapy how does that work and how can that be beneficial to someone in a nutshell what CBT is is it's time limited. It's not a type of therapy that rolls on and on indefinitely. You contract a set number of sessions and you have a goal which you and your therapist decide on together. And in a very simplified way, what you're looking to do is you're looking to identify how how you think, how you behave and how you feel are linked up. Those mm-hmm. things are inherently linked. And if, if someone's got a difficulty that they're struggling with, say low mood or anxiety or fear in social situations or eating problems you can unpick those scenarios and and pull out those different parts and you look at essentially what's maintaining a problem so what's keeping it going in terms of thinking patterns or behavioral patterns less so directly emotions it's more that's what it's cmb so and the Mm -hmm. emotions tend to follow and i guess another important thing about cbt is you are very much focused on the here and now so although you will ask about someone's past perhaps to help make sense of why they're experiencing something now, which can be very healing to have like a, a narrative around it. That's not the focus of the work. The focus is on what's keeping it going now. So you're looking to like knock the legs off what's keeping something going. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So you'll find something that's fueling a problem. Yeah. Either a behavioral pattern or a way of thinking. And you target that. I think the, the thing to find it most is it's really collaborative. The patient is the expert in their life and then you bring this way of making sense of things or models and then together you come to a solution. So it works really well for people who have some insight into that they want change. I think it works very well for people that are 
able to like introspect on their own thinking well and I guess are willing to do stuff outside of session. So you've got to get someone at like the right points to change. Mm. But it's not for everyone. And I, unfortunately, I think what's happened is it's had so much research plugged into it. It looks like the best treatment because it's the only one that's had that much research. That's not to say that it is the best. It's just mm-hmm. other things haven't had as much looking into them. So yeah, and then there's, I suppose, other types of therapy, sort of psychodynamic-based models are much more about looking at your past and your upbringing and your and your childhood and how that's affected your attachment and and the way in which you interact with other people and kind of unconscious processes but that's a much more involved experience and you'd, go, you'd be in therapy for much longer for that and yeah the goals are perhaps much more fluid and more an exercise in sort of self-exploration and understanding have you had cbt no before? i was about to say my most recent therapy was she kept saying transpersonal. Mm. Uh, transpersonal. Sounds cool. But the thing is, is that I went through a sort of uh, low-cost charity type place and I, I didn't really know what I was going in for. I just knew that I didn't really want a goal. That's why I didn't go for CBT because I, mm-hmm. I didn't want the goal aspect because I, I knew that I needed to work through a lot of stuff and I didn't want to have mm. the pressure of a definite date that it's going to end because there was a lot there was a lot to unpack and so I didn't really know what therapy I was going into because sort of I was waiting for the NHS to allocate me to to a place and the therapist I was with then suddenly like knocking out this term transpersonal and for whatever reason I never I, I did ask her once or twice but I never really understood it it was all about sort of she kept talking about peeling away layers but that, that's, all, that's, all, that's, all I, uh, that's all that stuck in my brain. Everything else she said, I, might, I, I either zoned out or just like, didn't really understand. Or, uh. did, you find, did you find it helpful though? That's the main thing. Yeah, it was very much looking into, in, into my past and stuff and my childhood and everything else. And there were times, these eureka moments where it was like, oh, mm-hmm. right, that makes a lot of sense. You know, these click moments. Yeah. But... Yeah. But there were a lot of the times, and maybe that's because like I didn't know how to be in therapy myself uh, for a while. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> um, because I would just, because I'm quite an open person with my friends. And so I would just treat her like a friend and chat to her. Complicated about, that one. Yeah. And, <laughs> but, but chat to her, like just say, okay, well, I said this to my friend yesterday, so I guess I'll say it to her. But then someone, um, a friend of mine said, wait, what are you doing? Why don't you tell her the stuff you don't tell your friends? The stuff you only tell yourself that you don't open mm-hmm. up about. Like, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly that's quite scary because it's yes. a complete stranger and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so when yeah, I started I doing when I started doing that, then it got more difficult than you actually were working through stuff. But unfortunately, mm. that was... It's not easy. fun. No, no. People think, oh, yay, therapy, woohoo. Like, what a lovely indulgent thing. It's so hard. Yeah. And Brutal. also... I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> and also... You say that already, but... Also, I knew exactly how to play my therapist. I was a terrible oh. patient. Absolutely terrible patient. You tinker. So whenever I had vivid dreams or anything, and I you know, didn't need her to, I didn't, I didn't care. I just always have vivid dreams. So yeah. And also at one time I had like dream paralysis. I had a few bouts of dream paralysis, uh, sleep paralysis, sorry. And, and so I would just bring that to the session. Cause I'd be like, well, I don't actually want to work today. So mm-hmm. 
I'm just going <laughs> to tell her about my sleep paralysis and just let her go off on one and try and analyze it for herself and yeah. just sit back and do no work. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't you care about this. <laughs> quite a little thinker. <laughs> Can actually come my way. <laughs> no, I like because I've, I've been the I've been the other side of it as well. And turns out, being a therapist makes you an absolute pain in the ass to give therapy to. I am oh, a nightmare. Sure. I hate it. <laughs> I hate the whole thing. Gives me a headache. Do you also like question their approach and you sort of see, you sort of try and see what they're, what they're doing and you point them um, out? Or? So I've had CBT years and years ago, which was actually very helpful at the time. But more recently, I had a bereavement and I straight away went into therapy because I was like, well, I need to do it to be good at my job. And looking back, completely the wrong reasons. I was not ready. I was absolutely full of anger, mm. unbelievably full of anger, which just... That's all that poor person got for 16 sessions. I was raging at her, poor lady. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and her, the, only, the only, like, saving grace was she had this little dog which calmed me down. Um, so I think it's all about timing. Like, that was completely pointless because I just wasn't ready to get, get past that. And it wasn't appropriate to get past that at that point. And more recently, I've had some bereavement counselling, which took a year and a half to come through on the NHS mm. but it's serendipitously been quite a good time because I feel much safer and like happier in my life and mm. and then now it's offered me the space to open up and I think what I was saying about counselling she's not solving anything for me it's just I found it quite hard to fully open up about it to I think I've done a little bit what you just said like I'll tell friends enough to make sure that everyone feels like they're supporting you and stuff but actually I needed to really like let rip and to be honest I just cried for 10 sessions 10 hours which probably there's a lot of crying to do so yeah bereavement (laughs) especially (laughs) yeah but yeah so I think if you come away from something and you feel like on some level it's it's done you some good or even if you take two or three kind of like what you said eureka moments that's you're not doing too badly we talked about how your clients manage the zoom transition mm-hmm. but how has it been for you sort of adapting to that? I was so sceptical at first because I'm not the most technologically minded person. I tolerate it, but I would kind of prefer to be in the Victorian times, really. So I was <laughs> a bit like hesitant about it. But from my end, I think initially you work harder as a therapist because you haven't got all those non-verbals right in front of you, which you're constantly trying to read. So you are constantly checking in and and attuning verbally more to someone and you're having to scaffold and structure the session more. And what I was saying earlier about dividing between pandemic and previous was also another thing that you're constantly holding in mind. So initially it it was stressful, but I've adapted to it now. I think the thing that I found difficult is normally in work you would... There's like a group, there's an office of six psychologists, which is an intense place to be. Mm. Um, but you, we all go off for our sessions and come back and you can almost decompress there. So because it's confidential within the team, you can kind of give a bit of a 
a debrief on what you've just heard or if it's something really harrowing. Right. Whereas here, I'm kind of like, we'll go out of the room and like go for a wee and come into the other room where everyone else is and they'll be like, you're okay? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> tough on that. And like, <laughs> can't, can't really like go into much more detail than, yeah, oh wee. <laughs> Just make kind of like <laughs> intense sounds. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's been hard. But then having said that, in the grand scheme of things, it's been fine. Have you had sort of weekly team Zoom calls so that you can decompress with your colleagues? Yeah, so I have supervision every week anyway, which I would do normally, but I just needed that a lot more where you talk about specific patients or clients or whatever. And then we ha- we're actually having a fortnightly team meeting, which we never used to do. We used to have one once a month and that's actually been great just in terms of checking in with everyone. And there's lots of things that we're trying to put in place like that befriending thing that I said and we've each been allocated a family member of another person's patient mm-hmm. to offer some support to as well because that's the thing we found is everyone being locked down and suddenly having to live with someone with psychosis that's caused a huge amount of stress so we've been like doing things to navigate that but yeah I mean I feel pretty well supported to be honest I've been very lucky. Is there any advice you can give to family members as you said or, or- people suffering from psychosis who don't really know where to turn who can they contact what resources do they have available to them so it's really interesting because we so we're a psychology only service but say your loved one who's got psychosis is under a community mental health team it's government policy nice guidelines state that we should be offering support for carers and interesting that that's that should be irrespective of the consent of the the person with psychosis so people are entitled to that support so if they were to call up their loved one's mental health team and say they're struggling and they need some care support there should be something available there or at the very least a means of signposting someone and there's lots of sort of third sector charities just generally for carers of people with mental health difficulties and mind is a really good place to look for things and rethink specifically for psychosis so there is stuff out there I think people are kind of often a bit ashamed of saying that they're struggling or try and present like they're functioning often because there's the fear that the loved one will get admitted back into hospital if there's a suggestion that people are struggling. So I think what is important for people to know is all of us mental health teams in the community are there to keep people out of hospital. We're not in the service of getting people. Yeah, <laughs> We're doing absolutely everything we can to make sure people don't because there's not very much space there. Yeah. So I think that's a myth that needs to be debunked a bit yeah this sort of old stereotype that you immediately get put in a white robe and into a psych ward sort of thing no trust me that's the least thing that we're ever trying to do Mm -hmm. but yeah I've been very impressed with how our team's adapted and everyone's really open to us like coming up with new ideas and so us offering that carer support that should have happened ages ago and it's kind of just been instigated and pushed forward by you know, coronavirus. And equally, none of us were set up to work remotely. None of us had a VPN or anything before this. And then yeah. in three days, we all had it. It's amazing it, how it's, quickly you can adapt to to situation. Yeah. And personally, for you, outside of work, how has COVID affected your mental health and, and, and just you personally? Are you are you okay? <laughs> how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, so it's a really interesting question because I feel, I, I'm, gonna, I'm not sure if this resonates with other people, but I feel quite guilty about how good a time I've had. Like mm-hmm. I'm really having such 
a lovely time. I can feel the guilt in me saying it. So my team was very last minute to kind of say what was happening. And my boyfriend was very keen to get out of London just because neither of us had a particularly good setup to have to work remotely. And so it all very suddenly decided to go to Wales and got the VPN and have been living with his parents for now nine weeks. Intense. And honestly, Boyfriend's parents saw really, really intense. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a, big, a big test. <laughs> but so far, so good. Like, it's been great. There's like enough space, the dogs. We've bought a camper van, which we're doing up. Lovely. like amazing project, hence the B&QQ, uh-huh. um, which is something I've wanted to do for ages and hadn't had the opportunity really in London and just thought, fuck it. So yeah, it's been really, it's been really good. I mean, I'm missing friends, but I am aware that people aren't really seeing each other. So mm. that's the main thing I'm missing. But now I feel very, very lucky. And it's this amazing family of loads of structure and like, a meal rotor and a cleaning day and I never oh, had wow. any of that, so I'm literally <laughs> lapping up having a bit of child. <laughs> wow amazing Jamie says the same thing actually he um he feels so guilty about how much he's loving lockdown but really he only feels guilty when he admits it otherwise he's just having a great time <laughs> <laughs> yeah I I struggled with it especially when I'm speaking to people and they're really struggling. I just so overwhelmed. I, I really, really found it very, very hard initially, like how privileged a position I'm in. But then I now have kind of framed it like me being here has meant that I'm able to work really well. And yeah. I don't think I would be able to do things as kind of competently did I not have like a, you know, a nice, quiet, private environment to do it in. So Yeah, you can and, help um, people to your best think, ability, which is yeah. your job, so... And I think there's so much pain going on in the world and that you feel like because there's so much pain, no one should deserve to have any happiness. And I think that's kind of, mm. if I was giving advice to someone else, I'd say that's a bit of a flawed concept. It's yeah. a balance between being like attuned and aware and deciding to like help in the ways that you can and, yeah. and address the, the pain that you can and not get swallowed up by the stuff that you can't. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that's the best way through this, but... It's been an odd one in that sense, I think. Yeah, you've said it. An odd one. It's definitely been an odd one. <laughs> how, how have you found it? Because you obviously just had a complete turnaround of, God, I felt for you. So you were one of the first people that like, it really sprung to my mind. Because I kept thinking about people in different scenarios and what it meant. And I got to yours and I was like, oh my God, just such a turnaround of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like you, I'm in a wonderful place with my boyfriend and his parents. It's all very beautiful and lovely. But I acknowledge that I'm probably not working through stuff. But I, I don't think I'm ready to. Like, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm still in survival mode. I'm slowly starting to, like, have structures to my day. So I, wake, I keep waking up really early. I wake up between, like, five and six every morning, no matter how late I go to bed. And so I, instead of whiling away those hours on YouTube or Instagram or something, you know, not good for me, I've started meditating in the morning and I'm also doing the 100 squats challenge where you... Oh my God. Where where in a month you build up to doing 100 squats by the end of the month. So I do that in the mornings and then I sort of, I don't know, start working leisurely and I'm developing a good routine and I feel like I'm using this time well. And I'm happy with the decisions I'm making. Yeah. But, but I don't think I'm reflecting or, right. or in any way processing anything. 
I, I think that's fine. I think let's just like step aside. We're all in a pandemic, guys. Like we don't have to fix everything about ourselves. <laughs> now is not the time. Now, now is the time to be a bit shit and like yeah. you know, like be a bit lazy. Is I think that's another thing that's causing people a lot of angst. It's like they've got yeah. this time. They should be like I don't know, learning to speak. I don't know seven uh, languages Swahili <laughs> and, and like and, and I, that's great but if you put it I don't know I think there's a lot of pressure being put on themselves I noticed that at the beginning I was kind of like I must you know make a lampshade today or, or like <laughs> or like who know, wakes up in the morning and like, says I must make a lampshade today <laughs> <laughs> or you know like end end the day with something productive whereas it's yeah I think it's it, it's okay to just be a bit shit I, yeah. I, I think that's it. And, and like not beating yourself up for that mm. because it's going to come in waves for people and I think also the adjustment back into real living is going to be an odd one as well well yeah and also how is that gonna is anything gonna change because in my mind too many people have realized, okay, so it is possible to work from home. So all this bullshit mm. that my employer has been telling me that I have to come into work, we managed perfectly well throughout a time when we were all working from home. So does that mean that people mm. will demand more rights in terms of working from home? That's just one small example of, you know, what will the new normal be? Or will just everyone be like, okay, I'm so glad that we're going back to normal. I don't want to change anything. I think there'll be a lot pulled out from it. I think we will change drastically how we're working and like offer remote therapy much, much more. Mm -hmm. Having said that, there's a lot of people out there that just can't do remote therapy and that you know are waiting patiently for face-to-face sessions but just didn't want to do it. And, and mm. so we will have to go back to some extent. But I think it's made me, but I wondered like more broadly, you think like what you actually need to be happy. I thought like this hustle bustle London life where you have all these plans. And I thought that I was thriving off all, all this kind of like interactions with people. Actually, I love it here with like just sheep and <laughs> <laughs> my, my run and like it's fine. And I think there's a fear of you being alone with yourself and that sudden that's going to be really scary and it's, mm. it's not. So I think I wonder if that kind of self-discovery has come out at this time. So you are still in lockdown because a lot of people throughout the UK aren't anymore. So I can still ask this question. What do you miss most about pre-isolation? I miss seeing my friends. I think it's spontaneity mm. and seeing friends. So being able to like at the last minute, just go to the pub and see people. And yeah, I think it's spontaneity that I miss a, little, a bit in your life in general. And I miss hugging people <laughs> and yep. like physical contact. I miss all my clothes that are in London. <laughs> Um, Tell me about it. I just yeah. living off. I'm just living <laughs> off the clothes I bought. Well, actually, I did pack for two years, but I packed light and I packed knowing that I was chasing the sun. You know that I was. It was going to be summer yeah, for the yeah, yeah. years I was going. So, um, well, you've done pretty well then with this lovely heat wave we've got at the moment. That's sure. good. 
but uh, yeah. I, might ha- I might have to hazmat suit up when I go to my parents' house to collect the rest of the <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Uh, yeah, sorry, those I are the main things, do. I think. No, I okay. think those are the main things. And also maybe like kind of not having any future plans, which in some ways I'm finding quite like exciting. Not exciting, but I'm okay with it. But also I do think a real helpful crooks through life is to know that oh you've got that holiday in so and so amount of time or so and and like that that all just being complete off the cards is, is yeah difficult, but yeah there's a lot worse things what are you most grateful for during this time and has it allowed you to do things you haven't been able to do previously i begrudgingly will say that i'm very grateful for technology i think i there's no way i could have done my job or mm-hmm. be able to commute you know like it's meant that for all of us in so many ways, this whole odd phase has been much more manageable than we could have ever dreamed it have been sort of 20 years ago. Yeah. So I think it's given me a newfound, although I was like a diehard, like I'm not really into technology now, I have a huge respect for it. Uh, so that's changed. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's allowed me to do my job better. I feel very grateful for having a job that I love for still having my job and yes. for still for it being something that I really value and feel like even a little bit like I'm helping. I think that's mm-hmm. been very, I've been very, very grateful for that, having that sense. I feel very proud to be part of the NHS at the moment. That's yeah. been lovely. Absolutely. Um, and then the other thing is my body and being able to run. I don't think I've ever appreciated how lucky you are to be able to exercise and get mm-hmm. out and more, more so than ever now I think I find such peace in doing that and that really grounds me and I I don't know I just had one thought one day of like imagine if you, just, you weren't able to exercise or do anything and how even harder this would be so I, yeah. I feel very grateful for that indeed that's wonderful and have you discovered anything new during this time that keeps your spirits up my van <laughs> your van yeah <laughs> I love my van <laughs> she's not very well at the moment she's got to go to the garage but um yeah she's keeping my spirits up and doing her up what else oh yeah so uh, I wrote I for my it was my dad's 60th birthday in oh. at the end of April and he was meant to have a big party at the golf club which he's captain right. of and obviously that all went out the window and I tried to do something for him so I got all of his mates and family members to put together a CD and, and did a message and a song a song that reminded them of dad and put them all together and that has just been so nice to That's listen to so and like lovely. hear all his like different music tastes and stuff and like Aww. has sent my Spotify in like a completely different direction with all this respect for like my dad actually had quite good music taste so that's been good oh that's so lovely uh so that was really nice and there's a podcast I'm sorry to plug another podcast on. oh YouTube please do no 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 oh no, my god do. this has honestly been the saving grace of my of my lockdown shag shagged married annoyed with Chris okay. Ramsey and Rosie Ramsey it is absolutely hilarious they're two stand-up comedians they're married uh-huh. uh, and they've got they've got a four-year-old and basically the premises they chat about their relationship and they start with like a beef to each other at the beginning of the podcast and they get sent in letters about dilemmas or funny stories and uh-huh. it's just escalated and escalated over the weeks to like the most like disgusting stories but it's just so funny <laughs> it's like <laughs> lots of poo and like inappropriate sex <laughs> what's it's it called really shag like, marry shag 
shagged, married, annoyed is really okay. good. Okay, I'm going to check it out. I'm definitely going to check it out. Yeah, 100% like made me laugh. They have like little jingles for each bit. It's, it's honestly, no, you will not regret it. Okay. So say that, that's helped me a lot. What is the first thing you'll do after all of this is over? Hopefully go on somewhere in my van if it's, if it's working by then is the plan. Because I think, yeah, if once I feel like this year is going to be a year of holidays in this country. So we're probably in quite a good position to have that now and yeah. be doing it up. So yeah, a little trip somewhere in that, I imagine. Um, do you have your eyes set on anywhere in particular? I would like to go to, so we're, we're in Wales at the moment, we're in mid-Wales, but I'd like mm. to do all of the coast of North Wales. Um, oh, lovely. And then west coast of Scotland at some point, the Lake District. So hopefully that's my big goal once this is all over. I'm really jealous. That sounds magical. I'd you love to be borrow a, it, love. Love to be a fly on the wall, <laughs> just yeah. like on the roof, just like holding. <laughs> just take me with you. <laughs> We're building three beds, so okay. There's room for another one. <laughs> and lastly, what is your number one mental health survival tip? I think we've weirdly spoken about a lot of it through this conversation, but I think initially when lockdown started, I think the thing that I was, what I was living by and the advice I was giving was take each week at a time. So try and cut off your future thinking as best you can and contract yourself down to like, just focus on this week. This week, we know for certain that the world is going to be like this and just focus on what you can do to make your life as comfortable and as good as possible in that week. And then we recontact again next week and see if we can push it a bit further. And like that idea of just containing yourself to what's in control or what yeah. you know more certainly than not certainly is, is helpful. And a bit like what we spoke about earlier is I think from like feeling quite guilty about how nice a time I'm having, that no one should overwhelm themselves with all of the pain. Yeah. Because that's not going to help anyone. It's about holding it and acknowledging it and not being ignorant to it, but helping in the ways you can. And no one's going to be in less pain for you having happiness. Does that make sense? So yeah, you feeling guilty won't make their situation better. Yeah. So I yeah. think it's it's trying to balance that. And it's hard because I feel like I can constantly kind of like tuning in and tuning out and, and trying to navigate that has been hard. But yeah, I think trying to just help in the ways that you can and feeling content, making peace with that being a contribution is probably my main advice. And okay. it's okay to be a bit shit in a pandemic. <laughs> That's important. That should be the title of a book or something. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, there we go. Love that. Well, um, yeah. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. Oh, it's been so lovely you, having it's been you. So nice. So that was the bonus episode with the wonderful Dr. Sam. I want to thank Sam for her amazing insight and giving her time to the show. All information on season two and future developments of this podcast can be found on the At Home in the Mind Instagram page, which you can find in the description below. You can also find there links that will direct you to organizations helping people suffering from psychosis and other mental health issues, as well as ways to support the black community. Thanks to Jamie J for production support. And thanks to you, as always, for listening. Stay safe. Look after yourselves in the meanwhile. And I look forward to introducing you to new guests in season two.